Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good morning. I know most everyone here, but if I haven't met you, I'm Trevor. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Beacon. I'm so glad you guys are joining with us. And, and if you're, you're new or you're visiting, you're not aware yet, this whole year in 2017, we are doing something uh, we're calling the 2017 Scripture Reading Plan where uh, as many people who are interested, I think we have over 200 people that are part of it right now, we're reading the same portions of scripture each day in our devotional time. Uh, And all of these scripture readings are organized around uh, a teaching tool called the New City Catechism, which involves 52 questions, which are then answered from scripture. So we're, we're trying to ask these questions about God and about Christianity and try to see what the Bible really does teach about these things. And so uh, many of the Sundays, we're not doing it every Sunday, but many of the Sundays we're going to be teaching about that question from that week. And so the question for this week is, what does the law of God require? And it says personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbid should never be done and what God commands should always be done. This question of of what does the law of God require, I'm sure is a question that you are asking constantly, right? You wake up in the morning, you're like, God, what does your law require of me today? Uh, So I, I understand if it's, it's not a question that, that you know, like is on the, you know, on the front of your mind all the time, but, but it is closely related to a question that I hear all the time. Uh, and that question is, what does the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? How do these two relate together? Because, you know, I get, I get Jesus, and he's all about love and forgiveness and grace. And, and then you look at the Old Testament God, and he's all about the law, and he seems angry all the time. And it's like, I don't, I don't see where the, the two of these connect. And, you know, and if, if we're, we don't know too many of the details, it, it could seem like they're, they're two different gods, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. And uh, you guys are familiar with Hamilton, right? This, like, musical phenomenon that's, like, sweeping the nation. It's incredible. Um, uh, when I was when I was a teenager, the musical phenomenon that was like radical at the time was Rent, and I was like really into musical theater, and so I loved Rent because the music was great and the style was cool, and my moral compass was not quite in tune with God's moral compass. Uh, and so, like me and my friends, we knew all the songs, we sang it all, and you know, like it was, it was all about it. And if you're familiar with Rent, you know that it's the worst. <laughs> um, but there's one song in the show called La Vivo M, and it's the most offensive song in the whole show. And uh, through the whole thing, they're just kind of like rapid fire, like talking about everything like that would offend people uh, and just kind of like throwing it all out there. But they're kind enough to include a little bit of scripture in there for us as well. And it's everybody's favorite scripture. It's where Jesus says, let him among us without sin be the first to condemn. La vie bohème. Uh, and so 
And uh, it took everything inside of me not to sing that. So, uh, <laughs> but this is, this is kind of the sentiment that sometimes we look at the New Testament and we see it's like, you know, no, no condemnation. It's all about grace and love and forgiveness. And then you see the Old Testament, you see the law, and it seems so restrictive. And, uh, and it begs the question, what, what is the connection? And, and better yet, what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? What was Jesus perspective on the Old Testament, because if we're, if he's our, our frame of reference, he's the one who can answer this for us, and, and what's great is we don't have to speculate, we don't have to guess what Jesus thought, because he told us very explicitly. So if you have a Bible, you want to go to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, to tell us what he thinks about the law, but before we look at that passage, I just want to take a moment to define terms a little bit. When, when we talk about the law, we are talking about the Old Testament law that was given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai uh, and the completion of it. So it includes the Ten Commandments, which all of you are familiar with. I bet you can all recite them, all ten of them, right? Yeah, no, I don't know if I could. Uh, but uh, it includes the Ten Commandments, but it actually goes much further than that. There's a lot of other laws. In fact, early rabbis, they, they narrowed it down to 613 unique commands that make up the Old Testament law. And for our purposes, it's helpful to divide the law into three different categories. These are widely accepted categories. They're not perfect. There's like some gray areas and stuff. But it's helpful for our, our conversation. There's three categories. The first is the ceremonial laws. And so these are all the laws about like sacrifices and cleansing rites and dietary restrictions and stuff like that. And, and the purpose of the ceremonial laws was to make somebody presentable to enter into the presence of God. So you would kind of have to go through all of these hoops in order to have access into the temple. That was the whole purpose of the ceremonial laws, to make us presentable before God. And then there was the civil laws. So you have to remember that Israel, in addition to being like a religious group, it was also a nation, like, and it was a theocratic state. And so they had laws in the same way that we have laws here in the U.S. Uh, these aren't necessarily moral laws. They're, they're kind of like laws about how to punish somebody if they do something wrong or how to maintain social welfare, stuff like that. These are the, the civil laws. Sometimes they're called the judicial laws. Uh, but for us, these laws don't really come into the conversation so much because we aren't a state. We are a church, and we function more like a family than uh, a, like a legal state. And so while the, these laws don't apply to us, they can be helpful to just learn. You know, like if you see that one of these civil laws, there's a harsh punishment for something, it, it does indicate to us like, oh, that, that is something God takes seriously. So that it's helpful as a, a teacher, but it doesn't really apply to us. There's this third category, which is the moral laws. And the moral laws have to do with morals, you know, morality, with everything, uh, you know, how we deal with money, how we deal interpersonally with each other, how, uh, how we deal with our bodies and our, like our sexuality and everything. All of this is kind of encapsulated in the moral law. So today we're going to talk uh, about the ceremonial law and the moral law. And we, we look to Jesus and what he says. And this passage that we're about to read is, is crucial. In fact, there's this uh, early to mid-20th century preacher, famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was talking about this passage, and, and listen to what he says. He says, nothing was more important than that he, that is Jesus, should state very clearly and explicitly at the outset the characteristic of his ministry. There are many reasons why men should harbor various misapprehensions with regard to that. And he goes on to say that Jesus was just unusual. 
He did things differently than the religious teachers. He wasn't trained in the same schools as the religious teachers. He treated people differently. He interacted with different people, all of this. And he says, all of these things seem to differentiate what he said from everything that the people ever heard. So they were obviously liable to certain grave misunderstandings with regard to his message and its general import. There's these certain grave misunderstandings that we're liable to. And that's what I want to look at today is, is three different misconceptions that Christians often have about the law. And looking at what Jesus actually says, uh, the first misconception is the law is no longer relevant. And as we go through these, these misconceptions, I encourage you to think, like, where are you? Do you believe any of this? Are you struggling with any of this? But the first is that the law is no longer relevant. That's all Old Testament. All we need is the New Testament. That, that kind of gives us the full picture. Now, if you're there in uh, Matthew 5, verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus starts off, and he's super straightforward. He says, hey guys, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. And, and Jesus fulfills the law in three ways, with his life, his death, and his resurrection. He fulfilled it in his life because he, he pulled it off. Like, he's the only person who was ever able to actually, like, do it. He lived a life in full submission to God's standards. And what's great about this is he says that he did it on our behalf, which is very cool. Like, we get to share in his accomplishment of pulling off the law. But he, in order for us to share in his accomplishment, it also meant that he had to share in our breach of the law. And so this is also really good news for us. It was not great news for Jesus at the time because this is the second way he fulfills it is he fulfilled the law in his death. See, you can, you can break the law and the law can still be fulfilled. Like if, if I were to park in a handicapped spot and nobody noticed and I got away with it, I would have broken the law and the law would remain unfulfilled. But if I parked there and I was caught and I was prosecuted and I was fined and then I paid the fine, even though I broke the law, the law would still be fulfilled because the, the penalty of the law was enacted. And this is how Jesus fulfills the law for us. We broke the law, and Jesus paid the penalty, the just penalty of the law, so that the law could be fulfilled. And the third way he fulfills it is in his resurrection. It says he, he conquered sin and death with his resurrection, and it says the scriptures teach that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in our bodies, empowering us to actually submit to God's law. It says without the spirit, we, just on our own, we can't even submit to God's law. It's like impossible. But we now have the, the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, empowering us to actually live in submission to God's law. Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. And this is really important for us. Uh, first off, it means that you don't have to fear that you broke the law. You don't have to try to obey the law in order to avoid punishment. Jesus already took it once and for all. Like, this is great news. We don't need the law to save us. Jesus saved us. But it also means 
that the ceremonial laws, all those laws that had to do with making us presentable before God, Jesus accomplished once and for all with his sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And that's why when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two, signifying that we now have access to God, not based on all of these cleansing rites, but based on his sacrifice, which means we don't have to make sacrifices. That one's, yeah, I don't want to get blood on my hands. But it also means we get to eat bacon. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Yeah. Uh, yes, so all of those dietary restrictions, all of these things that we used to have to do to make us presentable, we don't have to because Jesus has made us presentable through his sacrifice once and for all. And, and sometimes you'll hear people that say like, oh, I, I still want to like adhere to some of those restrictions. And, and they do it because they want to honor God in some way. But it, it is in fact dishonoring to Jesus and what he's done. Because we're in a sense saying, your sacrifice wasn't enough to make me clean. I need to do this to make me clean too. But Jesus says, no, 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 I've made you clean. You don't need to make yourself clean in any other way. But that, so that means that the, the ceremonial law is done. But that leaves us with the moral law. And the moral law is good. It didn't cease to be good. You know, if it was bad, Jesus would have repealed it. That's what you do with bad laws. You guys have heard about some of these ridiculous laws that are, like, still uh, around today. Apparently in Rhode Island, you cannot sell toothpaste and a toothbrush to the same person on a Sunday. So you can have one or the other. You just can't have both of them together. So I guess you need to go in partnership with somebody. Uh, I think it's, like, in in Alabama somewhere. Uh, You can buy a box of chocolates so that's good, that's good. But it can't exceed 50 pounds. Sorry, ladies, that you're, you're cut off at 50 pounds for your chocolate. Uh, but these, these sort of ridiculous laws, these are things that you know, mostly don't come into play. But if they did, we would, we would repeal the laws. That's what you do with bad laws. Like the, the prohibition, you know, they banned alcohol. And they realized, this was a huge mistake. Beer is delicious. And, and so they repealed the law because it was a, a bad law. Jesus didn't repeal the law. He fulfilled the law which means that the moral law still holds value for our lives. And so we can kind of replace this this misconception that it's irrelevant with this truth that the moral law of God is still valuable and it's it's profitable for us. And, And this is why the psalmist, yesterday, if you guys were following along with the reading plan, you read Psalm 119. He says, your word is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. So it doesn't, it's not just like for a moment in time, it's eternal. And he says later on, long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them forever. God's morals don't change. You know, it wasn't that he had a certain way of doing things before. And, and the process, the procedures have changed, but the morals have stayed the same. And so we could say with full confidence that the moral law of God is good and valuable to our lives. This is all summed up really well by Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You broke the law, you will not be condemned. He he already took that condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, not because there was a problem with the law, not because the law had a flaw in it, he says the law was powerless to do it because it was weakened by the flesh. So the law was good. It was us that had the, the issue. 
So what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law, not the unjust, not the unfair, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The moral law is good and it is profitable and valuable for us because God's morals don't change. Now, we don't have to fear that we've broken the law. Jesus took that condemnation. There's no condemnation for us, but it's still good for us. Which brings us to the second misconception, which is all we need is love, right? All we need is love. Jesus came, he said, just all the law and the prophets hang on this. Love your neighbor, love God. Like, if you do that, Paul echoed this. He said, all the law and the prophets summed up with this. Love people, love God. James says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will do what is right. So why do we need the law if we have love? And, and very quickly, we can just kind of rely on this idea of love and replace the law. But look at what Jesus says in uh, verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, quoting the Old Testament law. You've heard this. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, just love one another, right? That's what he says. No, he says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In verse 27, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, just love one another. No, no, he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you jump down to 33, again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord's vows, uh, fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, love one another. <laughs> you, get, you get where I'm going with this. Jesus goes and he actually continues to give commands in addition to this one command of love because we need to know what love looks like. Yes, all of it's summed up in love, but we still need to know the parts. How do we know? Who gets to determine what love practically looks like? What does love do? You know, so there's a man, and he loves his family. He loves his community. He loves his neighbor. He loves his nation. He loves his God so much, so much that he would, in a moment, he would lay down his life for these people that he loves. And he recognizes that there are people who wish to do him harm. He recognizes that there are ideologies out there that aren't only harmful to him and his, you know, his people's lives, but it could be even damaging to their souls, that these things might pollute their ideology and cause them to actually lose their souls. And so out of love, this guy hijacks a plane and flies it into a building. And, you know, from our perspective, we like to think, oh, no, 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 that's not love. He was motivated by hate, but I don't know if they would view it that way. See, love, just throwing out love as the blanket, we need to know what love looks like. You know, one person might say, I love, love, love my boyfriend or, or girlfriend so much, I'm going to give myself to them completely because I just love them so much, so I'm going to sleep with them. And you have a person over here saying, I love my boyfriend or girlfriend so much, to love them so much that I wouldn't dare steal from them something that doesn't belong to me. And I wouldn't take away their purity and I, I'm going to honor them and I'm going to honor their, their future spouse and all of that. And it's two kind of mutually exclusive ideas, both motivated by love. Which one's love? Or you know, I have somebody say, I love unborn children. I'm going to do whatever I can to defend their lives. 
Or another person says, I love women and I'm going to do whatever I can to defend their rights. And again, you have two uh, motivated by love, two mutually exclusive ideas. So who gets to define love? We need something outside of us. We need a standard. We need someone to show us what love looks like. And this is where the law becomes so profitable for us. Because the law, this is the second truth, the law teaches us what love looks like. You know, what is is the standard for truth in in our society today? Where do we look? What is the, the, the thing that we look to to understand what is good and right? What feels good, right? We determine truth by what what feels right. So much so that if all of the empirical data kind of points in a different direction, if everything, so, you know, like genetically, biologically, and physiologically, somebody is a man, but they feel like a woman, which one do we go on? Well, our society would say, go with what you feel, right? That's how we determine truth. But if we're all just doing what we feel how do, we, how do we deal with the fact that we're all feeling different things? There needs to be something outside of us, a truth, a standard. The law, the moral law of God gives us a standard that is unchanging, an objective standard that comes from the one who is love himself. There's this third misconception that the law is oppressive and restricting. And I get this because as soon as anybody tells me what to do, I'm just like, ugh. No, I feel like they're trying to put a straitjacket on me and it upsets me and I don't like it. (laughs) I like to be fully autonomous. And it's easy to think of God's moral law as something that's uh, oppressive and restricting, but look at what Jesus says in verse 48. This is something, uh, a truth for me, that when I began to understand it, it changed how I viewed the law. In verse 48, Jesus says, be perfect. All right, we got that. He gives all the commands. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. You see what Jesus is doing is all these commands that he's he's giving, and he's even backing this up with the whole law, all of that is actually revealing the character and nature of God for us so we can see what God is like. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus knew the father better than anyone else. He's the son. The son knows the father better than anyone else. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing because Jesus knew that his father's awesome. Like, he's just awesome. And Jesus wanted to be awesome. So he did what his father did. And, and when he calls us to be perfect, this isn't like a charge to just like stop doing stuff and be, you know, restricted. He's actually inviting us. He's inviting you to be awesome as his heavenly father is awesome. This is something that, that's for you, to build you up, not to restrict your humanity, but so you can actually be fully human experiencing the fullness of what God intended for you. It's an invitation. Now, it doesn't mean that the law isn't going to feel uncomfortable. Uh, I like to think of it as a, like a cast. So some of you, if you've been around for a few years, you might remember when I fell out of a tree a few years ago and I was walking around with a cane for a few weeks. That was fun. Uh, so that was not the first time that I fell out of a tree. Uh, I actually don't even remember the first time I fell out of a tree. I was like four years old. Don't ask me why. I was in a tree. Uh, but we had trees, and apple trees in our front yard, and I was wearing overalls. And I, uh, I fell, and my overalls got hooked from behind. So I'm just like dangling in the tree. And, I'm <laughs> and I, I don't remember this, but my, my father recounts the story, and he says I was just hanging there. And I was yelling, help the boy, help the boy. 
I'm the youngest, uh, if you can't tell. Uh, but when I was nine, I also fell out of a tree. Uh, yes, I still do climb trees. I haven't learned my lesson. Uh, but I fell out of a tree, and I, fell, I landed on my bike, and I broke my wrist. And, uh, and so for that whole summer, this is at the beginning of summer, the whole summer I had a cast on my arm. And it was so frustrating, and it was uncomfortable, and it was itchy. And I remember, like, the family went to a water park that year, and all I could do was stand in the wave pool like this with, like, a plastic bag around my arm. And I was just so frustrated at this stupid cast. Uh, and, and yet it took me a little longer to realize that the cast wasn't the issue. The cast actually brought freedom. Because if I didn't have the cast, I couldn't even sleep through the night because I would roll over and break my arm all over again. I actually, the cast brought freedom. It wasn't comfortable. Even so much freedom that, uh, that year as like peewee football practice began, I still had the cast on, but I could start practicing because I had a weapon. No, uh, but, but it brought freedom. And so the law is very similar. It's not, it will feel uncomfortable at times. And it might even feel a little frustrating and restricting. And that's okay. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with the brokenness inside. And, and we have this brokenness inside. And, and when we come to terms with that, we recognize that to correct it, things might not always be comfortable, but it's good. And it actually brings freedom. So what do we do with this? We recognize that the law is still good. It's still valuable. At least the moral law is still good and valuable for us. Uh, and we see uh, this, this third truth that, that there is nothing that God commands of us that, we ha- that he hasn't already done for us in Jesus. So we see that the law, as he gives it, it's an invitation to be like him. That when Jesus says, hey, don't be angry with your brother, be reconciled to your brother, he's saying that as the reconciler. Jesus is the reconciler who actually took, absorbed all the wrath of God so that we could be reconciled to God. And when Jesus says, don't lust, he's saying that as the pure one who has been faithful to his bride, even though we've consistently stepped out. And when he tells us to turn the other cheek, he's saying this as the selfless one who has consistently given of himself to make us good. And when he says to love your enemies, he's saying it as the one who loved his enemies so much that he would die for them, even when we were still living in active rebellion to him. So anything that God commands of us is is what he's already done for us through Jesus, and this is an invitation to be awesome as he is awesome. So, So what do we do with this? What do we do now? Jesus says in verse 19, very simply, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's simple. Practice it. Teach it. But then he goes on and he says something a little more shocking in verse 20. So they tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is shocking because if, if you're familiar, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they nailed the law. Like, they were really good at obeying the law. Like, all 16, 613 commands, they were just like checking boxes left and right. So, for the original hearers, they must have been, how could we possibly attain a righteousness that surpasses theirs? Because if it's about a, a level of obedience, they're at the top. So we can see very quickly, it's not about a level of obedience, but it's about a kind of obedience. And we see this most clearly from Paul. 
So Paul's great for this conversation because Paul was a Pharisee. Like, he, he knows what it's like to be a Pharisee, and he knows what it's like to follow Jesus. He's been in both camps. And in Philippians chapter 3, kind of gives us some, some helpful insights. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says more succinctly in Romans 1, the righteous will live by faith. It's a righteousness that comes from faith. Obviously, uh, as we talked earlier, there's a righteousness that we have by being united with Christ because we get to share in his righteousness. But there's also this, this other piece of it where we actually act righteous because of our faith. So when we ask this question, what do we do now? The answer is simply, we submit to God's moral law, but we do it out of trust. Emphasis on that, that word trust. Trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us, but also trusting in the God who gave us these moral commands. The Pharisees, they didn't trust. They, they actually used the law to build themselves up it's like a little kid, you ever, you know, when you tell a little kid to like go do something that they don't want to do, and they go and they're like, I don't do it. And then they come back and they're like, I did it, you can't be mad at me. And you're just like, uh, I don't hit children. Uh, but, but, you know, you know that even though you're, you're in control of their behavior in that moment, they're letting you know you are not in control of them, right? They're, they're just demonstrating, I am still in control. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They, they were, you know, submitting their behavior. They were complying, but they were still in control. They're actually using their obedience to kind of manipulate God. But the obedience that comes from faith is different. Because we're actually trusting, we're trusting the God who is given the law. So that even if we don't understand the law, we submit to the law. And this is really important because trusting the law doesn't, trusting the God of the law doesn't mean you, you understand every command. doesn't mean you even inherently agree with every command or that every command feels right. But it's particularly in those moments where we submit and we say, I don't get it, but I trust you. I trust that you know more than I know and I trust that you love better than I can love. And so we submit but not out of fear or shame or guilt. We submit out of trust because he has proven himself to be the one who is eternally trustworthy. And so for you, I don't know if any of these misconceptions about the law uh, ring true for you, but I want to encourage you to trust in him today. Find the areas where maybe you're not. Maybe there's commands where you're like, ah, I've been reluctant to agree with God's moral law because it just doesn't feel right. I encourage you to submit out of trust. Trusting that he's good and he loves you and he knows. Maybe there's things about 
how you deal with your finances. Maybe there's things about how you deal with your sexuality. Maybe there's things about how you deal with other people. You've been reluctant. reluctant. You've just been waiting for God. If God could explain it to you, then maybe you'd get on board. But but that's not trusting him. That's trusting in, in us, our own sensibility to make sense of these things. I want to encourage you, trust in him. He's already demonstrated that he's trustworthy. He's given his own son for you. What more do you need to know that he is for you? And and just respond to this invitation to be awesome as he is awesome. Let me pray for you. Father, we're we're just humbled by the fact that that you would send your son to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved, and then to, to then give us your spirit so we can, we can be awesome. And we know we can't do this in our own strength, and so we, we cry out for your spirit to fill us and empower us. God, I pray that we will learn to submit, not out of fear, not out of anxiety, but out of trust in you the one who loves us so much. Father, we we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.